keeping the R down is going to be absolutely vital to our recovery. Hi there, my name is Rob Verkirk. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen governments and news outlets become more and more obsessive about the R number. In this video, we're going to explain why we believe that R numbers are not the right metric to base lockdown policies and decisions on, and why you shouldn't let them frighten you. The R in the term R number stands for reproductive. The R zero is used in epidemiology as an estimate of the basic reproductive rate of infectious diseases. That's simply the number of people expected to be infected by one person in a population that's entirely susceptible, one that's never been exposed to the pathogen in question before. For SARS coronavirus 2, most of the estimates for the R0 range between around 2.2 and 3. If you compare that with other infectious diseases, it means that COVID-19 is moderately contagious, not highly contagious, as we're often told. That puts it smack in the same ballpark in terms of contagiousness as the common cold, also caused by a coronavirus, as well as hepatitis A. It also makes it around four to six times less contagious than measles or mumps. If you compare that with the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 that killed staggering 50 million people when the population was just 500 million, in other words, 10% of the world's population at the time, it killed people indiscriminately. It took out the young and also the healthy, but it had an R0 value of around 1.8 if you compare that to the two to three in a susceptible population for COVID. In reality, the transmissibility means very little on its own when you don't consider the actual risk of the infection, the deadliness or mortality rate caused by the disease. So while the R number gives you a measure of the transmission potential, the infectivity or degree of contagion of a pathogen, there are many other factors that affect it in the real world especially in a pandemic like the one we're dealing with now. And these include, for example, the latency, the time period between catching the infection and it manifesting as a disease, our behavior, government policies on lockdown, the length of time viral shedding occurs in those that are infected, the exposure of the viral particles to ultraviolet light and sunlight when in droplets, aerosols or on surfaces, the weather and environmental conditions generally, and of course, the proportion of the population that might already be immune. So while the R number is a really important way of understanding the transmission potential of a disease organism in the early part of an epidemic or a pandemic, as more people exposed to the disease and more and more people become immune, epidemiologists need to look at not at the basic reproductive rate, but at the effective reproductive rate. That's shortened to the RE or the RT. This takes into account all of the factors we've just listed above. But if the RT can be held below one, the disease will dwindle and eventually peter out. Over one, it goes the other way. But we shouldn't just accept the notion of eradicating a disease at all costs without carefully weighing up the societal costs of trying to do this as well as what the alternatives might be. So high R numbers in themselves are obviously no reason to lock down societies. That's why we don't do it for measles or mumps. 
it's the consequences of infection, particularly the risk of death, combined with the transmissibility that determine the overall risk to the population. The trouble here is that we actually don't have any high quality evidence or information that tells us the true deadliness of this coronavirus. Every day we hear broadcasts of the fatality rates associated with COVID, but these data aren't a realistic measure of the deadliness of the virus. That's because the normal work of pathologists has been sidelined because of the perceived risk of infection. But it's worse than that. Before the COVID pandemic, when someone who was fatally ill, say with cancer or heart disease, went on to die because in their terminal state, they weren't able to cope with a respiratory infection such as flu or pneumonia, the cause of death was generally given as the primary underlying disease, the cancer or heart disease. That's because flu or respiratory diseases aren't regarded as notifiable diseases. It's recognized that it was the underlying disease that made the person so vulnerable in the face of the infection. But with the arrival of COVID, the list of notifiable diseases has been amended to include COVID-19. This change in the way that cause of death are recorded without any opportunity for proper investigation by pathologists has a huge impact on people's and government's sense of the deadliness of the disease. And it's actually a serious misrepresentation of the reality. On top of that, it's even more difficult to do country to country comparisons as different countries record deaths in different ways. Sometimes deaths are only recorded as COVID deaths if the death is associated with a lab confirmed case. Other times if there's been no testing, just having a report of some of the key symptoms make it count as a COVID death. In the UK, for example, as of the 1st of June, deaths linked to COVID that are confirmed by commercial labs, not just government labs, have just been added to the COVID death toll. So let's have a look here at the death counts in a range of different European countries as collated by the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC. In green, you'll see the daily counts and then the smoother black lines show the weekly moving average of reported deaths across different countries. You'll see that in most countries with significant numbers of cases, which is shown in the vertical axis, there's a clear typical three month cycle for the epidemic wave. And that's regardless of the degree of the lockdown measures. You'll see a little upward blip in Sweden that's generating a lot of media hype at the moment, but remember that's coming from a relatively small number when compared with those in the UK. So we've got to accept that there are actually no reliable data on how many deaths are actually caused directly by COVID. So how else can you look at the deadliness part of the equation? What many of us are agreed on is that the data on excess mortality is one of the fairest ways of looking at the true risk of death caused both directly and indirectly since the virus came on the scene at the start of the year. Excess mortality tells us the number of additional deaths in a given time period compared against the number that would be expected to die in previous years. Therefore, it doesn't depend on how COVID-19 deaths are reported or even whether they're misreported. It depends simply on knowing how many people have died. And of course, that's something there can be very little argument over.
Excess mortality data from Euromomo that collates official figures from 24 European countries shows that even in the worst hit part of the world, Europe, some countries, particularly Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Luxembourg and Norway have experienced no excess mortality at all. Others like Ireland, Portugal, Sweden, remember without its full lockdown, and also Switzerland, Northern Ireland and Scotland have only experienced very small increases. England and Spain actually with high but nevertheless short-lived peaks in excess mortality are really the only two outliers and it's still unclear what all the contributory causes might have been but we know for example that London and as well as New York the tragic death tolls there were made worse by these cities being the two cities with the busiest airports in the world that would have undoubtedly contributed to more index cases at the early part of the epidemic which of course uh, a grave price was paid for later on but the lack of adequate shielding of older vulnerable people especially in care homes was also almost certainly another key factor as was the underlying vulnerability of infected populations it's still not clear how much these trajectories are related to the extent of lockdowns or just being part of the natural history of the disease the patterns would suggest that lockdowns are not as important as health authorities and governments would have us believe there's also no doubt that a really important way of reducing the RT number, the effective reproductive rate, is by increasing the immunity of the population. Yes, that's herd immunity, something that was talked about a lot at the start of the pandemic, but less so now as universities, governments and vaccine makers scrabble to create a COVID vaccine or multiple vaccines. The reality is that there is no vaccine today there's also no guarantee that there will be one that works and is safe. So what are we waiting for? So how can you increase herd immunity safely? Frankly, the way it's happened over and over again throughout our evolution, that means being exposed to the virus, not hiding from it. But because research over the last few months has shown very clearly who is likely to be most at risk, the key is to ensure that those who are exposed are the most resilient. That particularly means the young and the healthy. It also means making people more healthy or helping people to become more healthy. And it's the reason we've been arguing for the reopening of schools. But it also means that the most vulnerable need to be shielded, especially if the virulence of the virus increases later in the year. And while this is widely recognized, if we obsess over the trajectory of the R number, what we'll do is actually reduce the number of healthy people who become infected, meaning that we're likely to increase, not reduce the risk of a second wave of infection later in the year. History tells us that epidemics caused by respiratory viruses come in waves. And the key factors that cause the waves to wax and wane are factors like exposure to people, environmental factors like warmer weather and changes of seasons and of course the changing and more often than not declining virulence of the pathogen itself. So contrary to what we're hearing from governments at the moment, 
If the R number goes up in a relatively resilient, non-susceptible population, it's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. That means in the real world, if we're effectively shielded the vulnerable sectors of the population, why are we being asked to keep such a close eye on any increases in the R number and then being told to expect a tightening of lockdowns if they go up? Locking us down again because healthy people have become infected makes no sense. It's part of the solution, not part of the problem. Research over the last few months has shown very clearly that the pattern of comorbidities in adults, especially older adults, that makes some people susceptible to severe disease. It includes being overweight, having metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cancer, a history of lung or kidney disease. So let's quit obsessing about our numbers as the primary way of deciding how much we should lock down and whether they should be eased or tightened. Instead, we've got to look at the big picture of what's really going on. And that means carefully weighing up the wider consequences, not just in terms of the direct effects of the disease, but also the indirect health, social, and economic consequences of the measures we're being forced or asked to take by our governments. In many countries, we're in grave danger of moving ever closer to a police state, one in which populations are controlled by government authorities who justify their actions supposedly on the basis of science. Well, our numbers in isolation don't tell us anything about the risk of the disease, so it's utter nonsense and therefore bad science to let this number on its own determine whether healthy people can gather in larger groups or, for that matter, go to the beach. If we're to help co-create a more sustainable future in which we retain the rights and privileges that many before us have fought so hard to gain without widening further the social, economic and even political inequalities that have plagued so many societies, we need to see a big change in the criteria being used to determine the extent by which governments control and limit the freedom of their populations. You can find out below how to get this video to your elected representative. And if you like our videos, please go on our YouTube channel and have a look at other videos around COVID-19 and many other subjects relating to natural health. Thank you.